What's up, everyone, and welcome back to the Sports Mill Podcast. Want to jump right into it. We have an NBA final set, the Golden State Warriors, my Boston Celtics. So excited over the last couple of days as a Boston Celtics fan to finally get over the hump with this team, finally get to an NBA Finals. Want to talk about Game 7, want to talk about the series against the Heat. Man, what a roller coaster it was, and that's going to be the focus of this podcast episode today. Just me talking about the Celtics and their journey to the Finals. Going to preview it a little bit. And then we're going to talk about some pop culture stuff and just in the world in general. Um, we've had a lot of what seems like, to no fault of mine and Sully's own, a lot of lecturing on here about some things. So I want to be a little more conversational. That's on me. And so we're going to try to do that today. Let's start, like, like I said, with the Boston Celtics. Victory over the Heat in Game 7. Man, as a Celtics fan, I'm sure if you've listened to any podcast about this series, about the NBA, or listened to ESPN at all, so hard to figure out. Because for me watching it, I'll get into kind of my emotions. The Celtics were obviously the better team throughout this series. Game one, they came out. I thought they looked like the better team early. Then it seemed like they ran out of gas. They didn't have Marcus Smart or Al Horford, arguably two of their most important players. Um, And so that really hurt them in game one. Game two, they blow the heat out. And you're like, okay, the Celtics are the better team by far. And then game three, they come out and lay an egg again at home. They almost fight back and win. Game four, they blow them out. And you're like, okay, the Celtics are back. Game five, they take care of business. And so heading into game six, I was thinking the Celtics are at home with a trip on the lines of the NBA Finals. They're going to they're gonna, you know, close it out and, and take care of business. And they just couldn't do it. And, you know, you got to hats off to the Miami Heat because they were just so tough to play against. Every time their backs were against the wall, they always seemed to be able to find whatever it was they needed to do to win. Um and, you know, I could just tell in game six, man, this is gonna, not going to be one that we pull out, even though we took the the lead late and it was almost a Derek White game. But then headed to game seven, I still thought, you know, we have the better team. And game seven was just a microcosm of the series. And there's so many things to break down. But Celtics looked like the better team throughout, had a big lead at the end of the game, up 13 with like 330 left. And you're thinking, man. You know, they've done it. They've made the NBA Finals. And then they almost blow it. And Jimmy Butler has a three to go up by one, under 20 seconds left, and just missed his short rim. And I want to say, too, for all the people saying, and I've seen this a lot on Twitter, that Jimmy shouldn't have taken that three. I don't understand why. Yeah, he could have driven to the basket, but, you know, he had 35 points, like 40-whatever the game before. Why not take that three and try to get your team the lead? And obviously, you know, they fouled Marcus Smart. You don't know that he's going to make those two free throws. So I like the shot. You know, I had a chance to send his team to the NBA Finals. I think the Heat trusts Jimmy Butler. But a lot of things to talk about um, in this series and in this game. For the Celtics, if they would have lost this game, it would have been one of the biggest collapses in postseason history. And I've heard a lot of people say that. But I would have lost sleep over it. I would have been very struggling to understand how and why that could, that happened because they was so obvious that they were the better team and they just kept shooting themselves in the foot. They had game six at home up three, two, you know, had double digit lead throughout game seven, came back and took the lead in game or almost took the lead in game three. It just seemed like they were the better team. And that was what was so hard to figure out about this series is that you were, you, you were always like Miami can't win, right? And they, no, they just can't. And then they almost did. I mean, we're a Jimmy Butler three away. Now the Celtics easily could have come down and you know hit a game-winning basket. But the way they were playing offense at the end of the game, I certainly do not trust them. And that was what was so difficult to figure out is you never thought Miami, even in the blowout win in game three or, or game one and after game three, you never thought they were the better team. And so there are several things that that I want to discuss. You know, from what I saw in the series, I think is going to you know translate over into the finals. First of all, with with the Celtics. They have to be able in late game situations to continue to play the way they do early on. Because early on in that game seven, like I said, a microcosm of the series, they came out loose. They were running the floor. They were passing the ball. They were getting it to Grant Williams on these cuts. And obviously at the end of the game, the game slows down, but you stop seeing that. You start seeing more iso ball. Um, and, you know, the Heat do some things to double Tatum to get the ball out of his hands. But you got to run some action to make it easier on yourself. And another thing with the Celtics, and my man Marcus Smart, you could argue he won the Celtics that game. Um, he was had 24 points, second leading scorer, 
eight for 22 from the field, but he took the most shots on the team, and that's not really what you want either. Um, but Marcus Smart, man, I, he has these moments, and if you ever listen to Ryan Rosillo's pod, he says this as well. We're coming out of college. Marcus Smart thought he was the guy. You know, he he had Oklahoma State. He was the main scorer. He was the main passer. Had the ball in his hands all the time. Could play defense. And I think he kind of carried that over into the NBA, where he thinks that he is almost this guy who can do everything. He can shoot. He can get his own shot. He can dribble. He can pass. He can play defense. But he can't do that all consistently or at a high level most of the time. But you see these moments. And credit to Marcus Smart, he's kind of broken himself of that mindset to the point to where now he's a really productive role player who knows he plays defense well, shoots open threes, and passes well. But then he gets these moments where Marcus Smart is like, I'm the guy. I'm I'm the star player. And we saw that at the end of Game 7. And I saw a, a tweet, I think, by Mike Gullick Jr. that said, it's Marcus Smart time, in quotes, and then the guy who said it is Marcus Smart. It's like, that's what he thinks. It's like, oh, it's Marcus Smart time to win the game, and it wasn't. He took six consecutive shots to end that game, missed all of them, and they were so wide open, but you're sitting there going, please don't shoot because you know they're not going in, and so that was, I mean, almost an epic collapse by the Celtics, and the thing was, is at the end of that game, I, nothing they did was horribly wrong. Um, you know, the Jalen Brown charge or offensive foul, whatever you want to call it was, was bad, but they were getting open looks. They were doubling Tatum, um, which, you know, a lot of people were talking about Tatum's shot selection in the fourth quarter, not shooting enough, but when you're getting double and triple teamed, you really just can't, and you, you want to make the right play. And so that, I think that goes back to just the Celtics needed to run more offensive sets to get either Tatum or Brown open. Al Horford was non-existent in game six and seven. Now, we can talk about how great he is and what he means to this team and all that's true, but the man played absolutely terrible on the offensive end in game six and seven. So, you know, it was pretty much Marcus Smart, Jason Tatum, and Jalen Brown in in that game. And, yeah, they they needed to run some kind of action uh, other than just Tatum makes the right pass to Marcus Smart and we have to watch him brick another three. With that being said, the Celtics came out so on fire early on in the game, getting down in transition, playing great defense, and that's been the hallmark of the Celtics team all year is how amazing that defense is. They're going to go on a run almost every um, almost every single game with Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown. They did it in Game 5 to close it out, except there was no heat comeback in that one. They did it in Game 7 this time. Where Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown get going at the same time, Tatum starts making hard threes, hard fadeaways, driving to the basket, Brown makes a three, makes a drive. They go on like a 15-0 run every time. And when you see that, you're like, oh my goodness, this team is the best team ever. You know, these two stars are, are amazing. And when you see those spurts, those moments, and they almost happen consistently, especially on the road, it seems like, the Celtics team is unbeatable because it's like, where do you who do you guard? Where do you go to guard? But then those same two players don't always show up, and they both have they both have extreme flaws, and that's what worries me about the Celtics uh, Warriors series is that I, I've told several people this: Jalen Brown is a superstar or a star, not a superstar, a star at the game of basketball in a good way, but yet his best ability is turning the ball over, and I don't think I've ever seen a player who is a star basketball player that the best thing he does is something bad. But that man can't dribble, like legitimately. He dribbles better between his legs and behind his back than he does just an up and down dribble. And I don't know what it is, but it looks like if you told him he had to dribble the ball five times just up and down, I don't know if he could do it. That's like not in his, like, it's that's not the way he's coordinated. And so every time he drives to the basket, if you send any sort of help at all, it's a turnover waiting to happen. Although I will say, you go back and watch game seven, he made several really good passes, um, when when he drove and and they kind of converged on him, he kicked out to the open corner several times. So Jalen Brown has some issues, but when they get going, it's tough. And and I do think Jason Tatum, to his credit, was really assertive early on in that fourth quarter. But at the end of the game, you you got to get a couple shots up. You got to find a way to get it going. And he has his flaws as well. His passing at times can be erratic. Um, he's really weak, and that's what bugs me about Tatum is. They were up, I think, 53-38, to 38, something like that, in the second quarter, comfortable lead. He had two straight layups where they were wide open, and he just inexplicably, I don't even know how to explain it, he just throws the ball up at the backboard 
with no control of his body and he's not fouled, I don't get it. And so he's got to be able to cut that out. Like, dude, just fight through contact if that's what you think it is. You can't be a baby. You can't be weak in the playoffs. And you're costing your team because both times he fell down, it was five on four, and it led to a, a wide-open three, I think, both times for the Miami Heat. Um, and so that's annoying. And so Tatum's kind of got to get that out of his game. But overall, I mean, like I said, Game 7 was a microcosm of the series in general because it's like the game starts and you think, man, the Celtics are the much better team. Like there's, They just are. When they play the right way, the Heat have no answers. They don't have enough shooting. don't have enough scoring. They, the Celtics have too much athleticism. And then midway through the game, you're like, man, the Heat are really hanging around. They're tough. And the Celtics just kind of make a lot of mistakes. They don't make layups. They turn the ball over. And then the Heat got the game back to like three. And you're you're thinking, man, uh-oh. The Celtics are the better team, but the Heat play harder. And then Tatum and Brown go on that run, extend the lead to like 13 or 10 again in the fourth. And I'm like, okay, game's over. The best team won. The better team, the better superstars, whatever you want to call it. And then the Celtics just stopped playing and collapsed like they always do in the fourth quarter and arguably easily could have lost the game. And it's ironic that Marcus Smart missing his last six shots of regulation makes two free throws to put the game out of reach. So that's how it goes sometimes. Um, Really happy the Celtics could get it done. But yeah, it would have been, like I said, I would have lost sleep over that. And I know that's an exaggeration, but um, after beating the Brooklyn Nets in the first round and sweeping them, and a lot of people still thinking they were the favorites coming in. They're beating the reigning champs, winning games six and seven to get to the Eastern Conference Finals. If they would have lost to the Miami Heat, who are arguably, I think you can say looking back that the Nets were the worst team they played, but the Miami Heat had no business winning that series and beating the Celtics. And if they would have lost games six and seven to them, it would have been it would have been miserable as a Celtics fan. Um, there's just no other way to, to describe it. And so I'm really happy they were able to get that win. Um, but I do want to talk about Miami for a second. Uh, Jimmy Butler was amazing. Um, and I do think if you're one of those people who always looks for excuses, I, I, I hate, I love Twitter and hate Twitter at the same time because you'll find so many people on there who I don't know if they're being serious or they just legitimately think that or they're just looking to start trouble. But everybody has an awful take about something. And... If you're one of those people who always is like, this is going to tarnish someone's legacy or they wouldn't have won if it wasn't for this. And you can say that about the Heat and their injuries. Like Jimmy Butler was not himself games three through five. Kyle Lowry Lowry was hurt. Tyler Hero was hurt. But everybody's hurt. The Celtics had players out. Jalen's banged up. I'm sure Tatum. I mean, the Heat literally were assaulting Tatum. That was their strategy. It's just we're going to beat Tatum up off the ball. And so there's no way that man was healthy. And if your excuse is that, well, Middleton was hurt and now the Heat were hurt and that's why the Celtics made the finals, that happens every year. You can make an argument for that for every single team. Somebody's always hurt. Um, But I will say that Jimmy's game six and seven were two of the better performances that I've ever seen. And and I heard this once again, but I think Bill Simmons said it where... I mean, the Celtics just had no answer for Jimmy. I don't know if they really tried to stop him because he, he doesn't do enough to really make you like, oh, we're going to send a double team every time. But he's so good at the mid-range. He's so good at getting to the basket. And he seems to always make the right play, the right pass. And it was just amazing to watch him kind of – he never took a playoff. He played 46 minutes in game six, 48 minutes in game seven. And he always seemed to just kind of get the heat going again. And it was frustrating as a Celtics fan, but really as a basketball fan, I, I appreciated watching him – um, play in this series and I think if the Miami Heat had given him a little more help I mean they were right there with the trip to go to the finals which is really embarrassing for the Celtics honestly because he just had no scoring options I mean when you're looking to Max Struess as one of your main options that's a problem uh, Bam had a really good game seven uh, as well he had good moments throughout the series but wasn't consistent enough and they almost did it and it was it was almost very bad for the Celtics my my favorite thing about the series, though, and why the Celtics won, and I saw this uh, on Twitter a lot as well, is that I will no longer have to see Kyle Lowry uh, play basketball. Um, and I'm glad I wasn't the only one who noticed this, but he flops worse than any NBA player I've ever seen. He probably did it upwards of 10 times um, in that in that last game. And the refs keep getting fooled by it. 
And I don't understand how. It's like at some point you got to realize this man flops all the time. My, he's he's Marcus Smart on steroids. And I was just waiting for that moment because it, it, there was a perfect chance for it at the end of the um, the first half where Lowry drove into Smart and Smart actually held his ground and Lowry flopped and they caught a foul on Smart. But I was waiting for them to run into each other exactly like that and they both flopped backwards in opposite directions and then the refs are like, well, I don't know who to call it on. They both flopped. It's like, And so... I mean, Lowry took so many charges where I thought he was moving, but because of the way he looks, and they would call an offensive foul. But man, he flops. He can't do anything without flopping. That's his entire game at this point. Um, and it's just, I want to just scream at him. And yet, like, do you want to play basketball this way? Is that your goal? But it really is an art form. And in some ways, I guess you got to hand it to him because if you can keep getting away with it, why wouldn't you do it? But I'm so happy. I never have to see. Kyle Lowry's chubby, flabby self flop again in this season. And he did, He alone is the reason that he should not have made the finals because he was so annoying when it came to doing that. Um, but anyways, that's just an aside on that. But the Heat were, were a worthy opponent. They were really tough. They made the Celtics work. And I will say, I think it was almost more at the end of the series a problem of the Celtics – they didn't, they couldn't, they were so like scared of getting over that hump. And I've heard this talked about as well. You know, when there's something like you really want, you really have to get over. The hardest thing to do is get over the hump, no matter who they were. And so no matter who they would have, they would have played. It could have been the Sacramento Kings or whatever that they just had to get over this last hump of making the finals. And I think you saw that by how the players reacted because they were almost reacting as if they had won the finals. You saw all of them, you know, on the floor, you know, really hu- hugging each other, crying, all of them, it seemed like, posted after the game. And we didn't see any of that up until this point for the Celtics. And so I think this was kind of like the last hurrah, if you will, for them to get over that hump. And I really wonder if this won't free them up for the finals, if they'll play better um, against the Warriors. Not only because they're not going to try to muck the game up like the Heat did. I mean, I think the Heat knew they weren't the better team. And so they were like, we're just going to foul all the time so the refs don't know what a foul actually is. We're going to assault Jason Tatum. And it made it really an ugly game for the Celtics for throughout the series. And that's and then when it got late and the Celtics slowed the game down um, and it got more pressure packed, they folded a little bit every time. And, and so hopefully now that the Celtics kind of got this out of the way, we'll see a much more composed team um, in the in the finals against the Golden State Warriors. So that's my recap against the Heat. It's been a great finals uh, playoff run for the Celtics. Um, They give you a heart attack every time. But that's kind of the beauty of this team is that they're not like this superstar juggernaut team. They got Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown, two guys who you could argue are superstars, and Tatum's certainly on his way. Um, But besides that, it's just a bunch of role players. You know, Marcus Smart, Al Horford. I mean, Grant Williams is their five, fifth best player. Robert Williams. Oh, aside, let me go back. Robert Williams was so important for them in games four and five, was all over the place on defense. He was unplayable in game seven. He did not do a single correct thing in game seven. Um, I don't know what his problem was. He was jumping past shooters. He kept bringing the ball down, getting stripped. I don't know what his problem was, but he should not have been out there. And he's going to have to be a lot better for them uh, if he's healthy against the Warriors. But anyways, the Celtics aren't a team full of stars. You know, even their, you know, third and fourth guys and Smart and Horford are just kind of these, you know, role players who do a lot of good things for their team. Um, And so that's why I think it's so fun to root for them is you never know what you're going to get. One game they could come out and lose by 30, but because of the way they play team basketball and play hard and play defense, they could also blow out any team by 30. Um, And so that's what makes the Celtics team so fun. Glad they made the finals. I hope you all are happy for me as a Celtics fan, even if you don't care uh, at all. Because I was sitting there watching the game with my brother um, in my Larry Bird jersey. And it was a special moment. It was a special moment to see the Celtics finally get over the hump and get to the finals. All right, we're going to take a quick break. We're going to come back, talk about the Celtics Warriors, what I think the matchups are, uh, and talk a little bit about how the Warriors... Uh, got to the finals and how I think the series is going to play out. So stay tuned for that. 
All right, so as I mentioned, the NBA Finals are set. Boston Celtics will play the Golden State Warriors. Warriors, it seems like, finished their series against Dallas a while ago now in Game 5. Um, I think this is going to be a really fun series. Like I said, the Heat series was so weird because you thought Boston was the, Celt- the better team. They probably should have won every game except Game 1. Um, that was really the only game I felt like, man, the Heat actually just looked like the better team in the second half there. The Celtics turning the ball over. Um, but this series, I I think the two teams are pretty well matched. They're very different um, in the way they play and in the personnel that they have. But instead of the Celtics series where it's like, what in the world is going on? Why is Boston, why is this in game seven? We could see those same type of swings that we saw where it felt like always somebody had a double-digit lead, but it's not because you know, one team just didn't show up. It's just how they play the game. The Celtics have had great success against the Warriors, and that should be, you know, noted going into this, is that obviously the Warriors aren't the dynasty they were. Kevin Durant's gone. Curry's older. Thompson is not the same player. Draymond Green's not the same player. They have a lot of new faces. But since the Steve Kerr dynasty era of the Warriors, since he's been head coach, the Celtics are the only team that has a winning record against the Warriors. So they match up really well with them, always have, even at the peak of their powers. Marcus Smart always seems to defend Curry well. Um, dives into his ankles at times too, but I don't think that was on purpose. And so it'll be interesting to see how, obviously the Warriors offense is great. They're going to play well at times. But I think the reason the Celtics give the Warriors trouble is that they have a little more athleticism and size at every position. And so they can keep up almost with the Warriors. Smart is just as athletic as Curry. Obviously, Curry is going to get him several times just because he's the greatest shooter, ball handler maybe we've ever seen. But Jalen Brown can guard Klay Thompson. Uh, Jason Tatum can guard anybody. Al Horford is almost Draymond Green, but older and less annoying. And so they kind of match up really well with them, and they're able to guard them in a way I think that other teams aren't because they don't have this, you know, small point guard you can hunt or this unathletic shooting guard who doesn't want to play defense. No, everybody on the Celtics wants to play defense, and they can switch. Now, the Warriors run a style of offense, too, of cutting, moving, that's hard to defend, but the Celtics can just switch all of that, and they kind of are always locked in, so it's hard to get those easy buckets. And so I think the Celtics, they've done this in the past, we might see some games in the finals where the Celtics just look like they're the, the best team ever and they blow the Warriors out because that's just the style of warrior of game the Warriors play. They get up and down the floor. They turn the ball over as well. And by the way, in this series, that, that might set an all-time high is because the Warriors turn the ball over better than the Celtics almost. And we have already, I've already talked about Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum's problems. So you could see a, a couple of possessions or 10 possessions in a row where we just see eight turnovers and 10 possessions. And it may be one of those things where we keep getting on the fast break and they just keep throwing away. Um, but that's what makes the series so great is that both teams are so offensively adept at times and equally turn the ball over. And that's going to be, I think, create a lot of big swings, a lot of runs. And I think that's been said in some of the podcasts I've already listened to that this, is, this series is going to be a series of runs but we could also see a lot of really fun, really close games where the teams score a lot. And that's why I think people didn't really enjoy the the Miami-Boston series in, in the sense of watching it, is that the Heat just mucked the game up. It was low scoring for the most part. It looked ugly. And I don't think that's how it's going to be in this series just because the Warriors don't have the personnel to do that. You know, like Steph's not going to get physical with Jason Tatum and, you know, beat him down. Like that, it's not just going to happen. Jordan Poole can't either. Klay Thompson not really at this point. Draymond is to some extent, but that's just not the way they play basketball. So I think it's going to be a really fun series. My, honestly, I would favor the Warriors, but the Celtics match up with them really well. And the Warriors, I don't think to this point, have still lost a game at home. Um, I think that's true. Yeah. But the Celtics are a really good road team. They've won seven games in this playoff on the road and five at home. Um, so more games on the road than they have at home and they've had a home court advantage for every series except Miami. Um, so I like the Celtics chances at chase center too. It almost scares me more when they come home to the garden, which you would think that's crazy because they have such a good home crowd. But for some reason, it's just been something about playing on the road that they have, that they've played better. It seems like Tatum and Brown are more locked in on the road. And so that'll be something to watch out for. 
Um, but the matchups, as I said, are really interesting because obviously Curry is great and phenomenal, but he's always struggled against the Celtics, and I think it's the way Smart plays him. They can bring in Derek White to guard him. They can throw Jalen Brown. They can throw so many different guys on him. And I think it'll actually be easier to guard them this time around because Clay is not what he was. Clay is not as athletic. Can't blame him after all the injuries. He's more of a standstill shooter. And that's what I've noticed in these playoffs is that when he has the Clay games that look like the old Clay, it's really just he shoots really well and they actually get him open shots. And so the Celtics' goal, I think, will be to just run Clay off the three point line, make him a driver. He's kind of like Jalen Brown in the sense that he's got about two good dribbles, and then if he tries to do anything else, he turns the ball over. I mean, he's never been really a good ball handler. Um, We all remember the 60-whatever-point game where he took like 10 dribbles. No, it was like four dribbles. Yeah, it was four. So, you know, if you can make Clay put the ball on the floor, make him, um, which, of course, if you he'll do that little pump fake sidestep, and that's the same as a catch-and-shoot. So if you can make him become an off-the-ball guy or or putting the ball on the floor, I think it hampers him a lot. Jordan Poole can be erratic at times. He doesn't play defense, and so I think the Celtics can attack both him and Curry. And that really puts a lot of pressure, I think, in this series on Draymond Green and Andrew Wiggins. And Andrew Wiggins, who would have thought after his time in the Siberia land of Minnesota that he would be probably one of the most important players on this Warriors team because he has the ability to kind of do it all. He guarded Luka, and even though Luka is going to score 40 every game, he I thought he did a pretty good job. Um, then on the other end, he's kind of there do-it-all four, where he can shoot the three, he can make a mid-range, he can drive to the basket, he can post you, as we saw on Luka as well. Um, and so he's going to be really important. And if he's the Andrew Wiggins of Minnesota and where he doesn't care, the Celtics have a good chance to win this series. But if he's the Andrew Wiggins we saw against Dallas, where he plays good with high energy every night, he could be one of their better players and somebody that really the Celtics have to, you know, he takes pressure off of Curry and Thompson and, and Poole. Obviously, Draymond's going to do his thing, um, but he's not really a threat on the on the offensive end. And I think he's going to have to try to shoot some threes because the Celtics are not going to respect him. That's kind of what they did in the Miami series to P.J. Tucker at the end is like, we're, we're, gonna, we're not going to let you have this catch and shoot three, but anything else, we don't care. Um, and they kind of did that with several other guys. And so Draymond is going to have to be a better factor on the offense end. We know he can pass, but he also turns the ball over a lot as well. So I think the Celtics match up really well with them defensively, but obviously there's going to be moments where the Celtics turn the ball over. They look like the Celtics that come out with no energy, and the Warriors are going to go on like a 20-0 run. It just happens because that's how good the Warriors are. It also will interest me how, how well they play those younger guys, how much they play those younger guys, I should say. Because they actually kind of match up well with Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown. Like Jonathan Kaminga is kind of that same body type. Moses Moody built like a Jalen Brown. Do they try to throw them at those guys and give Curry and Thompson kind of a reprieve? That'll be interesting to see. Um, and I think the Celtics have done a really good job of of not having like a, a big swing and mismatch like that where you're replacing you know Curry with like Moses Moody, two very different body types, two very different players. Whereas the Celtics, you know, go to their bench and bring in Derek White and Grant Williams. And even though Grant Williams is built like a a bulldog, he can guard anybody as well for the most part. Um, And so Peyton Pritchard is really the only guy off the bench that they'll play who comes in and he's not really, he's somebody you could hunt on the defensive end. So that'll be interesting to see how the Warriors play that. And as I'm actually talking about this series, I'm kind of talking myself into believing the Celtics have a pretty good chance. But it does scare me that the Warriors actually have home court in this one. Although I just said the Celtics have played better on the road. So who knows? And that's the thing is this series, I I love it just thinking about it because it's not one of those where I feel like the Celtics going in should win necessarily, but I think they can. And that's an exciting thing to be as a fan because it's not this pressure of, oh, we have to win. And I felt that in the Miami series. Like I know we're the better team. I'm going to be disappointed, heartbroken if we lose. And I don't think that about that series. I'm just ready to watch it. I think it's going to be super fun. I think we're going to, and I hope we see a lot more scoring because I think that's really going to give Tatum a chance to kind of elevate himself. You were obviously the Warriors and Curry are going to do what they do, and so I think it's going to be a really, a really, really fun series. Um, to get on that subject really quick though, of Jason Tatum, we've seen this several times throughout the playoffs where he'll have a game six like he did in Milwaukee. You know, he looks unguardable, and it's like Jason Tatum is a top five player in this league. Stop. Come on. Jason Tatum is not there yet. Um, I'm not ready to believe that. He, 
I, I will say he is becoming more and more complete of a player. And we'll see that at times where, you know, he's double, he passes out of it. Made some really good passes in game seven. Marcus Smart just can't hit anything. Um, he plays defense at a high level when he wants to. He guarded Kevin Durant exceptionally well. He obviously can make any shot except to catch and shoot three because that man has such a long um, motion into his shot that if it takes if a defender is anywhere in his radius, he can't get it up in time. So he has to take off the dribble threes. But he can drive. He can get to the mid-range. He really can do everything on the floor. Um, and so it's just doing that at a high consistent level. And if he can ever do that and take care of the ball, then we, we maybe can talk about him as one of those elite players. Um, but just because let's say he goes out and averages 30 a game, the Celtics win the finals at six, whatever, that does not mean Jason Tam is suddenly like a top five player in the NBA. Although that's going to be said if that happens, I promise you it will. Jalen's a big part to this series as well. And he always is. He is the most important. I say this about so many players. Marcus Smart has to be in the game. Like, obviously, if he was not on the floor, I think he's the most important player. But Jalen's offensive production is so huge because when he is a focal point of the offense and teams have to respect him, it frees everybody else up, it seems like. So he has to play well. He has to play efficiently. He did for most of the Miami Heat series. He didn't really have just a terrible game. And so that's going to be huge against the Warriors. They have to respect him. And then it also is going to create a lot of more matchup problems for the Warriors because... Who are you going to stick on Jason and uh, Jalen if they're both cooking? Wiggins can't guard both of them. Clay's not what he was defensively. Marcus Smart is going to have to take advantage of either Poole or Curry and kind of bully them, although Curry is a better defender than people think. So it's going to be interesting to see the matchups that are created um, in this series because I do think the Celtics are going to be able to score against the Warriors and also defend them better than most teams have. So... As I'm talking about this, I think I'm going to I'm going to pick the Celtics. I mean, as a fan, I want them to win, but I really think the Celtics after getting over this hump, Warriors are the betting favorite. That's probably the safe bet because they've been there before, they have the experience. But I think the Celtics getting over the hump of the Eastern Conference Finals and beating the Miami Heat, finally getting to the promised land after not being able to do it in the past several seasons in the bubble against the Cavs. I hope it frees them up to just play, just play basketball. Let's not worry about what the expectations on us are because we've made it to the finals. And we'll see some of these young guys just play free and a lot of the, the in-game worries. I think they're still going to be there, but maybe they can actually make some shots at the end. And Marcus Smart will make an open three when it actually matters. And Jalen Brown will, will make a good play at the end. Tatum will do his thing. Al Horford has to play better. And so hopefully those Celtics will show up and, and we'll see this team that has become honestly one of the best teams in the NBA. They haven't lost a back-to-back game except January, except one time and they rested four of their starters. So you could really argue they have not lost back-to-back games truly since January, which is just incredible. And that's another thing that's been impressive about these playoffs is that after a loss, Celtics are the best team that has ever played. Like they do not lose after a loss. And so I think, you know, that's something that the Warriors, you know, might struggle with as well. It's probably not going to get two or three in a row against this Celtics team unless something drastic um, just happens. I've really enjoyed the playoffs after the first round. Obviously, it's more so, I think, because I'm a Celtics fan than it is because the playoffs have been so great. Um, but I think we did see some interesting things. The Luka thing against the Suns, that's that's funny to me. The Suns collapse. Uh, the Mavericks got to put some more talent around Luka. But I don't really think you could have asked for a better matchup than the Warriors and the, and the Celtics. And I know everybody before the year started was like, Lakers-Nets, that's who we want to see. But I'm so happy that we, we didn't. Because you sit back and think, who wants? nobody wants to watch two selfish basketball players and Kyrie and Kevin Durant play two more selfish basketball players than LeBron James and Anthony Davis. And I know James passes the ball or whatever, but I'd rather see two teams who really deserve it, who play well together, who play basketball the right way, get there. And it's just a fun matchup. And so really hope we get a good series. I, I won't be mad, honestly, if it goes seven, just because that'll mean the series is really good. But I hope Celtics win. That's my pick. All right, that's all the breakdown we're going to do on the NBA today. Celtics have beaten the Miami Heat to get to the NBA Finals. Really exciting moment for me, exciting moment for the Celtics. And hopefully we get a good series. Take one more break and we're going to come back and wrap it up talking about some sports things and some not sports things. 
All right, to close here today, just want to talk about some things in the real world, in pop culture. Uh, I got five things I want to talk about very quickly um, to close up. Like I said, I think we've been a little luxury on here about sports, and I don't want that. I want it to be conversational. I want you to enjoy listening. Um, I think I'm a funny guy, but who knows? Maybe I'm not, but hopefully you'll enjoy listening to some of this um, today. And so I know we have a lot of serious stuff going on in the world right now, a lot of problems and a lot of things happening. I don't want to gloss over that. We just celebrated Memorial Day. I want to thank all those who have who have died, you know, fighting for the freedoms of this country. But if you dwell too much on that, obviously, you know, you can get really depressing. And I don't want that to happen. And I think the answer to a lot of our problems is just we instead of talking, we need to be better people. We need to treat people like we want to be treated. And we need to make the world a better place by our actions, not our words. And that's all I'll say on everything going on right now. But let's talk about some fun stuff. I just got back from Disney World and Universal a couple weeks ago with my family. Went for a week. Really enjoyed it. And, you know, Disney World is so funny. Um, I love it. I mean, it's one of my favorite places to go. I could spend all day, every day there. Although, I'm sure I'd get tired of it eventually. But it's like you walk up and you see, you know, the same thing with every family. Is that you look at the dad and, and he's just got this grouchy look on his face. Like, good grief. I just spent thousands of dollars to come here. He's always like so unhappy. And of course, you'll see some, you know, having fun with their kids. But the stereotype is you see every dad just so like, what am I doing at Disney World? I'd rather be anywhere else. And then you see the mom, you know, like wearing the, the T-shirt with Mickey Mouse on it or whatever she made for the family looking all happy. And and it just amazes me like how Disney sucks you in like that. And I was talking about this with my mother, but they have they've created after COVID this like convoluted system called Genie Plus on this app that you have to get, and it amazes me that we we like to consider ourselves like these mature adults or whatever you want to call it, and then we go to places like Disney World and all that just goes out the window, and I guess it's like you can say that with anything about something we're passionate about that we, you know, sports job we're mature until it comes to that thing and then we're kind of just nerds or whatever it is, but we go to Disney World and we're just we forget all sense of like embarrassment, I guess. And you start using terms like lightning lane and genie plus and moms go crazy. I got added to this Facebook page, my mother to kind of help us figure out what we were going to do each day. And it's just insane. The amount of things that they put on there and the amount of time that these people, I don't want to say all of them are moms, but will spend into figuring out what Disney has created this system, if you will, and it's so convoluted. You got to get up at like 7 a.m. on the day that you're going to the park. You got to get a fast pass. Then you got to wait two hours before you can make a new one. And you're so worried about your day and about how to plan it that you forget to have fun. And uh, we did. I saw it a lot of fun. But it just cracks me up how we kind of just forget all sense of being mature adults for Disney. And they could literally come up with, you know, anything they wanted. And they could call it, I don't know, you know, Donald's Donald Duck's bill or something as their program and make it the most convoluted thing ever. And you'd have all these moms on Facebook figuring it out and posting how, how to do it. And so that's, that would be me as a Disney director of the park is what's the most convoluted system I can come up with for people to um, get fast passes and stuff or whatever, get in the park and then just watch, you know, all the moms go crazy over it. But Disney World was fun. We went to Universal as well. If you, if you're a big ride, ride rider, um, Universal has some great roller coasters. The, the new Jurassic World one is um, really cool. Maybe one of the best ones I've ever ridden. It's a really fun trip. I would suggest going. I know, like I said, all the dads are mad because you have to spend thousands of dollars on it. But, you know, as a kid, I like it. And as a 21-year-old boy who doesn't have to spend any money um, on the trip right now, it was great. I will say my greatest accomplishment, uh, I did have surgery on a broken wrist a while back. Um, so I'm wearing a cast right now and I got Cinderella to sign my cast. So, you know, I don't know what that says about me, but I would definitely say up there in the, the list of accomplishments so far in my life is that a uh, Disney princess signed my cast. So do with that what you will. All right. Second thing I want to talk about, and that was kind of just throw away. This is also going to make me, I don't know if this will make people judge me or not, but I think it's undoubtedly the best person in the performer music world, artist world right now is Harry Styles. And that man is just amazing. And I know this, I don't know, you're like, what in the world is he talking about? I can't believe he's talking about Harry Styles. But everything that man does seems to be the, the perfect thing to do for his fans. Like, they, it just people just love him. And I think something that celebrities all try to do is, like, relate themselves to their fans and try to make themselves seem like normal people. Like, we'll watch all these interviews with them. And, 
And I don't get that with Harry Styles. And it's almost like this Michael Jackson feeling, if you will. And I'm not comparing him to, to Michael Jackson. But where he's like this larger-than-life figure where he's just not like a normal human. Like the outfits he wears, like... Good grief, he was wearing one this one time where he looked like he was in a he was in a pea pod. It was like a green uh, dress. I don't know. And it's like, nobody normal does that, but we Harry does it, and we're like, wow, that's awesome. And then, you know, his music is just kind of different from everybody else. And so he's like this larger-than-life figure, um, the way he performs. And that's kind of what makes him, you know, I think the best thing going right now is that he's just so different, so electric, and he's got so many fans of so many different you know, people, obviously a lot of, you know, younger teenage girls like him, but I think men like him too. I'm a fan of his music. And it's one of those things where you can't tell me you don't like listening to his music. It's just, I don't know the word. Hold on a second. There's a, is there a word for aesthetically pleasing, but for the ears, obviously, you know, aesthetically pleasing is like a lot of times for the eyes, I guess, but Harry's songs, you could take away the words and him singing. and Oh, euphonious. Harry Styles' songs are euphonious. Where you just listen to him and you're like, man, that's something nice to listen to. And they're all so different and so interesting. And he's kind of changed from this pop guy with one, uh, one Direction to like this, I don't know. Like he just brings in a lot of stuff from it seems like old music, new music. And he's kind of genreless now. And a lot of mu- musicians are, and artists are moving that way. But... His songs are just really nice to listen to. I don't even know what they mean, and that's probably a problem sometimes. And that's another thing about Harry is you don't even really know what he is. Like, I haven't seen enough interviews with him to kind of get his personality, but I think that's his whole shtick. Is like, he's like this, like I said, larger-than-life figure that everybody almost adores, and he just kind of does his own thing. And you don't know if he's a normal guy, a weird guy. He is what he is, but he makes great music. And I would highly suggest listening to the new album if you have not. And... If you're judging me right now for going on a Harry Styles rant, then I don't know what to say. He makes good music. All right, third thing I want to talk about, a little more sports-related. <laughs> Jock Peterson obviously was a big part of the Braves team last year. Kind of became the vocal voice, even though between you and me, wasn't that great of a player. But he did have some big moments for the Braves, really helped him you know, win that World Series. Um, the whole fight with, uh, Tommy Pham over the fantasy football league is hilarious to me. And I just love the fact that obviously like it probably would have come out, but I love the fact that Jock was like, just, oh yeah, I'll go into detail. I'll pull up the, my messages to show you what happened. And you know, it really, that, as I just mentioned with Harry Styles, like he makes it a point. It seems like to be like this larger than life figure. That's not relatable. And that's, that's great. He's not like a normal guy, but like that really shows you that these athletes sometimes are just normal people who happen to be good at a sport because they literally fought over putting a player on the injured reserve in his fantasy football league. And I know it fam came out after that and said like Jock put a meme of the Padres on there, which he showed. <laughs> and that's another thing that's so great is Jock was just like, yeah, I'll pull up the messages from my phone. And there was a lot of money on the line. So it makes a little more sense rather than just, you know, Jock, you know, took advantage of the rules, which he didn't really. But I just think it's hilarious that it was like a year later and Tommy Pham was mad enough to slap Jock Peterson uh, on the field in a Major League Baseball game uh, or whatever it may be. And so that just goes to show you that if there is somebody in your fantasy league that you're mad at, you're just like Major League Baseball players. And maybe you should not slap them in public where you could get in trouble. It's not that serious. But I just thought that was really hilarious and, you know, the perfect guy for it to happen to was Jock Peterson because he was just like, eh, yeah, this is what happened. I think it's kind of funny. All while he looks like a, a llama and says it with like no sense of humor, but that's what makes it even funnier. And Tommy Pham seems like a hothead. I think he's gotten in trouble several times too, but that just shows you, I guess the silliness of our world right now is that we have two major league baseball players getting in a fight over, a fantasy football league because one guy put a player on his injured reserve and picked somebody else up. I don't know. It seems a little silly to me, but at the same time, a little funny. All right. Fourth thing I want to talk about today. Uh, what, what do I want to say for last? We'll, we'll talk about the shows. There's a lot of, a lot of new shows coming out right now. And I don't know if I like this era of television. Obviously I've only been alive for 21 years, but obviously with the streaming services and everything and the way COVID hit and movies now, it's like, going and waiting for something to come out is just such become like a letdown if you will um 
and now everything just comes out at once and we watch one episode of something and it's just like, ah, we either like it or we don't. I really like that um, Star Wars came out with the Obi-Wan series, watched the first episode. It's actually pretty good. Really liked it. Um, Stranger Things 4 has come out. Haven't watched that yet. I've heard kind of mixed things about it. Um, but, you know, they're getting towards, I think, the end of that show. But another thing that's really surprised me is the new Top Gun movie finally came out. Top Gun's always been one of my favorite movies. I know apparently people have mixed feelings on that. I was listening to a morning show with with Greg McElroy and Cole, Cole Kublik, and I think Cole said that he didn't really like Top Gun. All the movies from the 80s are cheesy. It's not supposed to be like this cinematic masterpiece where the plot is just amazing. It's an action movie with Tom Cruise, and he plays shirtless volleyball. Like, you know, come on. But I still like the movie, I and I just want to make it clear, that sounds bad. I do not like it because Tom Cruise plays shirtless volleyball, but I know some people do, especially certain girls, if you will. But it's just a good movie where, you know, they're doing fighter pilot stuff, and it's cool, and I love Goose, and rest in peace. But I don't understand why people are hating on that movie, because it's not supposed to be the cinematic masterpiece with a great plot line. Like, it is what it is. It's an action movie with, with fighter pilots and Tom Cruise. Like, that's just what it is. But apparently, everybody I've seen, warranted or not, have said it's this is like the greatest movie to come out in a while, and that everybody needs to go see it. So I think I should. You know, I really like Top Gun. So I don't know what your opinion is on that movie, but I would su- suggest suggest going to see it if you like the original. But there's been a lot of hit or miss things come out right now. I also haven't seen Doctor Strange in the, the new one, but a lot of people didn't like it, didn't like the, re- the direction they went with it. And so that's what it seems like kind of like we either love a movie or we hate it. There's no in-between now. And that's what scares me with these shows coming out is that we're, I'm going to get into one of them and be like, yeah, this isn't that good, and I'll just drop it. And that's kind of how we are with our short attention spans is even if we think something is mediocre, we used to fight through it, I feel like, because there just wasn't much on. But now our attention span is so short and we have so many options. If we don't like something, we just be like, yeah, on to the next. So hopefully that's not like that. It Hopefully that won't be the case with Stranger Things and, and Obi-Wan and we'll actually like those two series. Um, but yeah, well, I mean, I don't know if you're listening to this and you want to comment, I know not many people listen, that's fine, but you know, tell me what your favorite series, tell me your favorite movie and is Top Gun good? Like not the new one, but the old one. Cause I think it is. All right. Last thing I want to talk about today and then we'll quit. A lot has been made of the NIL situation with Nick Saban and Jimbo Fisher. And I, I think, you know, people are like, Whatever side you're on, obviously I go to Alabama, I'm a big Alabama fan, but I am unbiased in some regard. Saban doesn't say anything, I think, unless it's calculated and measured. So I, I he knew going into that press conference or whatever it was that he was going to say something about NIL. I think where he messed up is that he didn't think by calling out A&M and Jackson State, maybe he did get a little carried away that it would create such of a problem. Because in his mind, he wasn't, this is what people are like trying to to dissect this. And it's really, it's not that hard. Saban always adapts to his situation, but he also may not necessarily like what he's adapting to. When the spread offense came about, I don't think Saban wanted to go that route. And that's why it took a couple of years for him to catch up. But eventually he was like, I have to, to survive. And he's the greatest coach of all time. Maybe you disagree with that. And so he finally was like, I'll hire Lane Kiffin. I'll start recruiting players that can play that offense and we'll change and we'll be a better football team. And that's what happened. And Saban has continued to win national championships. His point of bringing up NIL and, and complaining about it, if you will, was his way of saying, I don't like the direction of the sport that we're headed. I don't like NIL and paying players and it just being how much money you have. It wasn't to complain that some team was doing something unfair and when he said Texas A&M bought every player, I don't think he was complaining. I think he was about them in particular. I think he was complaining about the state of college football and saying, I don't like that a team with a lot of money can just go out and be like, we're going to pay you a lot of money to play here. He also didn't call out Jimbo, Jimbo Fisher by name. So for Fisher to come out and say it was despicable and assault Saban. And I was like, dude, you're just mad. Like what in the world? Um, and, you know, the Jackson State thing with Deion Sanders, I do think Saban, you know, probably should have thought about the consequences of calling specific teams out and players and coaches a little more. But what that really was about was Saban doing what he's always done when there's been change. With the transfer portal, with the spread offense, like I said, whatever it may be, it was saying, 
I this is how I want it. As Nick Saban, as you know, Jimbo called him God, whatever you whatever you want to think about Saban. I don't like the way the direction is headed, so I'm gonna put this out there. But what Saban was more saying is that I don't like it, but guess what? If this is how it's going to be, then I'm about to abuse it and take advantage of it. That was the point of what he was saying. If he's complaining about the state and he was saying, I want change, but if not, then I'm going to have no choice but to adapt. And Alabama, I think, is about to start taking advantage of NIL. And that was the goal of what he said, was not to complain about these other people and to throw his hands up and say, I haven't, you know, I'm this innocent, perfect guy. And I know it kind of came off like that as well. But that he was saying, I don't like the direction this is headed. I wish it were different. But if it's not, then I'm about to adapt. And I think Bama is about to destroy everyone in NIL once again. Because that's what he's done with everything. He's taken advantage of it. And so that's to me what the rant was about. Is He is he hates the fact that he is about to have to use NIL to his advantage. And he wish it weren't that way. Because for people saying like Bama Saban's over the hill and Bama can't get any players. Like, do you see the people on their roster right now? Bryce Young came from California and just won the Heisman. Will Anderson probably should have been at the Heisman ceremony and is arguably going to be the number one overall pick in this next year's draft, or probably should be the number one overall prospect. Like, Bama does not have trouble getting high-level guys without NIL. And yeah, maybe NIL will make it where more of these players will go to their hometown schools or whatever. But to say that Saban is over the hill and he's just mad because he's about to be out-recruited is a joke. Like, come on. I don't think that's happening at all. And I think that was more, like I said, because he was frustrated with the direction we're going and he wished it wasn't like that. And he hates that now he's going to have to use NIL to his advantage. So that's my spill on that. I don't mind Jimbo and, and Deion Sanders getting upset. Like, if my team was accused of that, I probably would also be upset. Um, and it kind of felt like, you know, just it was an unfortunate circumstance that Saban used those two teams as an example of his complaint with the overall state of college football. But for Jimbo to get all mad and start assaulting Saban's character was, was just kind of funny. But anyways, that's my thoughts on that. I think Alabama will be fine with NIL, whatever. They're going to do it like everybody else. And obviously, it may even the playing field to some extent, but you know, Bama has more money than anyone, so I think we're going to continue to see dominance from them. All right, those are my five things today. Talked about the craziness of Disney World, the amazingness of Harry Styles, the dumbness of the Jock Peterson Tommy Fam scandal, the TV stuff right now, movie stuff, and then Nick Saban and NIL. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If there are more pop culture stuff you'd like me to talk about in the future, if you like to listen to me do this, hit me up. I'm going to try to be a little more free-flowing with it. And my Boston Celtics are in the finals, so go Celtics. Thank you so much for listening today. appreciate everyone's time and for all the support if you do listen. And we'll see you next time.